can't think of any more human activity than conducting science experiments. The game I play is a very interesting one. It's imagination in a tight straitjacket. The beauty of a living thing is not the atoms that go into it, but the way those atoms are put together. What I always think should be the basis of education is not answers, but questions. We should teach kids how to question. that Alex beautiful we're in the sun today oh man listen uh getting out amongst it yeah and really exposing ourselves to skin cancer here yeah no no they say I heard the other day actually on an episode of Science Versus that's an awesome podcast you guys should check it out check it out um they were talking about vitamins and supplements and they were talking about vitamin D mm-hmm. and they were saying you need about 10 or 20 minutes a week of sun activity to get your vitamin D in Oh, really? Yeah. So, so if we record this for 20 minutes and we just don't go in the sun for the rest of the week, you'll be good. You get your vitamin D and you probably won't get skin cancer. Probably. But um, I have pretty good genes, man. I, I color, so I go dark. Yeah. I don't know about you Caucasian people, man. I, I just burn. Oh, yeah. That's but that's why. not the UV that's burning. Isn't it the uh, infrared that burns? Is it? I'm pretty sure infrared burns. But then shouldn't darker skinned people be exposed to more infrared and therefore they should burn more? Mm, Why would they be exposed to more infrared? Isn't Uh, it the melanin protect it? No, because darker colors absorb heat. Yeah, but doesn't the melanin protect it? I thought the melanin protected it from UV radiation. Like the heat that you feel now, I think that's, yeah, that's from infrared, right? Maybe they get more hot. I don't know. They might get more hot. You reckon? We yeah. should do a study. We should look into that. Maybe I'm just talking crap. <laughs> but, no, I was pretty sure the infrared was what burns and the UV is what gives you cancer. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if that's the case. Yeah. But I don't know if like, I'm going to find like, man, these guys are doing yoga, by the way. So we got to show you guys a bit later. Oh, yeah, we have to. It's pretty cool. Yeah, seriously. No, no, no. Well, let's just show them that now. Okay. Um, I hope they don't mind being like recorded uh, doing their yoga poses, but Either now they're doing the one leg crane. I don't know what this position is. Reaching towards the sky. Praying to the, the cloud gods. I don't know if those gods exist. <laughs> but yeah, we should do a study where I'm going to find like my dark friends, like Afghani friends. Because like, yeah. you know, Afghanistan's got like all sorts of people. Yeah, you have Afghans that look completely Russian, like like. I have a friend, his name is Wahid, and the first time I met him, I thought he was just like some white dude pretending to be like Afghan because he was hanging out with Afghan guys. Yeah. And then I realized, oh no, this guy is like a legit Afghan. He just looks like a white dude. Like he had like green, blue eyes, just really fair skin. Um, and then you have, did you mess it up, dude? Just I'm messing it up. Keep talking. You're right. You're right. <laughs> and, then, and then we have like people that look super Asian. Because um, we're in the middle of Asia and a lot of the trade used to go through Afghanistan. So you have like the Hazara people in our country who are like, they look 
um, very Eastern Asian looking, so uh, typical Chinese, uh, Eastern Asian. Um, and then you have people like me who look like Arabs. So you have Arab looking Afghans. And then our focus group, so we'll get people like my friend Wahid, who's totally like white and Caucasian looking. And then I have friends that look Indian. Um, again, it's that culture mix, right? So you have Afghans that look like they're much more dark skinned. Um, so maybe we could do a test on them. So get like 10 Afghans that are dark skinned, 10 Afghans that are like yeah. light skinned. And let's see who heats up first. On that, in, it's, uh, in Indian culture, there's a real big, um, there's the same type of thing in Indian culture, right? There's, you know, there's really dark skinned Indians and there's really like fair skinned Indians. But in Indian culture, that's really a sign of your status in society. Mm. Like if you have a really fair skin that you're seen as a higher status than uh, someone who has dark skin. The funny thing is like white people will hear that, right? And they'll think, oh, they, that's just because they think like white, white people are, are better. And they make this racist assumption that it's because they think white people are better. But what it actually is, right, is because uh, in India, if you have dark skin, it's a sign of you like working outside yeah. and being yeah, a laborer. Yeah. So yeah, it's like yeah. a laborer's job. So it's actually yeah. got nothing to do with like the race kind of part of it as well. Yeah. But it's like, you know, white people sit back and go, oh, that's so racist that they have this privilege of white skin and think it's better. But actually that assumption in itself is racist. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's like, do you remember... Um, yeah, no, that's so true. That's something that actually my own culture shares and a lot of Asian cultures share. So in the West, we have this fascination of um, wanting to become more tanned, right? Yeah. But in the East, they have this deep fascination of wanting to become more light-skinned. And they actually have products like bleachers. They have like stockings that they wear over their arms and feet and legs. Yeah. Like a lot of Indian movies, somebody, one of my Indian friends was saying that... Um, so they get a lot of the actors from the north part of India because I think they're more like lighter skinned. But even then they wear like stockings. I don't know if you can call it stockings, but really like thin, light skinned um, fabric that looks like skin, yeah. but it's just like two shades lighter yeah. for the cameras, right? Um, yeah, it's interesting. It's, uh, <laughs> it's like sometimes you always want to be what you're not. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, but but, but that's the thing. It's, a, it's a, The skin color was an indicator of affluence, right? So if you're more light skinned then you've probably didn't stayed inside stayed and had inside. a high high class job and exactly. things like this yeah. um and you had a pretty comfortable life and people are attracted to that yeah. you know what's interesting like in the victorian times i think it was around that time yeah like chubby women were really yeah, yeah i was just thinking that <laughs> like if you were chubby like dudes used to go crazy over you there's another funny parallel in music right um it's like like these poor rappers you know, they come from like really socially disadvantaged places and things like that. And they always like pretend to flaunt money and, you know, oh, yeah. pretend to be rich, you know what I mean? Yeah. So it appeals to like the opposite. But then the flip side of that is like these like rock, rock kind of like grunges who like, you know, wear like ripped shirts and right jeans <laughs> and like, like pretend to be heaps poor right, and kind right. of like, so that? these like rich white kids are like following these like people who are pretending to be, to be poor, poor. <laughs> and like the like poor black kids are pretending to be rich it's like a full <laughs> like yeah yeah it's what funny it's funny everyone yeah. wants to be what they're not i guess yeah, yeah. Like kanye west i mean you see him dress up like some of these clothes mm. you're like man i could probably find that like i don't know like kmart or yeah, something you yeah. know what I mean? like, yeah. you're worth hundreds yeah. of millions of dollars if that yeah. why are you dressing like us man like yeah. what the hell's wrong with you yeah, it's like the richer you get, the more poorer you... But it's weird, right? It's like... I think it's also about who it appeals to as well. Like, because 
uh, that type of like rapping things so appeals I guess a lot to um, like disadvantaged like black people and things like that in America and white so people. yeah yeah but they they see it as like a way of pretending to be rich yeah where you get like rich white kids like I was a rich white kid who like love listening to Nirvana and like you know wearing a ripped kind of you know flannelette shirt and yeah 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 (laughs) scrappy shoes and like that was the look you had to be you know what i mean (laughs) yeah yeah first time my mom ever saw like somebody wearing a ripped jeans she comes home to me she goes hamid like what's wrong with people are people getting poor or something i'm like what do you mean she's like well i just saw like a bunch of girls and guys with ripped jeans like can they sew it up or something? <laughs> like, like, mom, this, uh, is, this is a new thing that's yeah, it's a different culture. Yeah. It's a different time. We're going away from looking good to looking semi-good. All right. I think we're probably crapped on enough. We should probably talk about uh, Jack. Yeah. So a little bit. Jack, Jack, Jack. Because we both know Jack from um, the Emres course that Masters we did. of Research. Yeah, yeah. And he was a really phenomenal teacher. I think you mentioned to him in the episode cause, um, that... Yeah, he was probably one of the best. Oh, it might have been the intro for the episode. That he was yeah. one of the best teachers that you had yeah. uh, um, during your your university studies. I'd probably have to agree with that. I think, yeah. It's you know because we both love teaching, and part of the reason why we started this podcast was we wanted to kind of share that knowledge that we get from you know experts and stuff that we learn. We just want to pass that on. But it's great seeing like a person who's really passionate about education and. Um, Jack's really cool because up until that point, I, I never had anyone who actually um, spent a lot of time, bef- besides Mark, who, you know, spent a lot of time helping us. But the, um, but Jack was just like, yeah, really cool. He super, like, detailed feedback, always open for um, conversation and, and um, dialogue. So that I think that's so cool because, you know, just like Alex, remember when we had Brooke on? And yeah. Brooke's like, oh, Alex really inspired me to get into this yeah this is alex norman alex norman i yep. should say yeah um i bet jack's you know done it has has had that sort of influence so i know like this podcast idea actually it was like a fairy tale before i started the emres and then i mm. heard jack talking about how he did a podcast episode whatever i'm like oh wow like regular people can actually do this shit yeah similar thing and well one of the projects that he gets those MRS students to do is create a blog as well so he really gets people engaging mm. in media and, and and promoting stuff online as well but I think in more importantly um, in general I really liked that MRS course and probably the the real take home thing that I liked about it was that it was multidisciplinary mm. and I know we've talked about this several times but that really kind of spawned blab coats in a sense right <laughs> like like because we we met all these people from different research areas and kind of that's where the idea kind of came from so so it's really important and I thought we could maybe talk a little bit about like broadening skills in general and yeah, yeah. I think that's an important um because more and more we're seeing that. And even from our, our first guest, I think Sandy was talking about um, the idea of collaboration in science and how it's your tendrils and things reaching out. Um, and I guess the the more varied places that those tendrils kind of go, the better, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like if your tendrils are reaching out and they're only to people directly in your discipline, then your knowledge is going to be really restrained. Yeah. Reminds me of that John Searle reading that we did about Stephen Hawking's. How it, and this is something uh, um, also Lawrence Krauss in in his book The Greatest Story Ever Told. You know he kind of like 
wanted to attack this idea that science is done in isolation by these lone geniuses, right? It's usually people who are able to bring people together and collaborate and work. Those are the people that make the greatest discoveries. Those are the people that like actually get shit done. It's, yeah. it's hardly, I mean, Isaac Newton's one exception, you know, he was a weirdo who just locked himself up and came up with calculus yeah. and all these, yeah. and all these other stuff. Oh, let me just increase the gain. Just yeah. talk on the mic. Here you go. Right? Yeah, sorry. Yeah. All this other stuff, but that's rarely the case. Um, so bringing people together is, is an important thing, being able to collaborate, but having different skills, I think, well, this is the approach that well, I'm going to... Well, you don't get those revolutionary ideas unless you, you have influences from outside, right? Like a groundbreaking idea almost by definition has to be something different from what everybody else is doing. For sure. And the way you get those different ideas is by talking to different people. Mm. So if you're always talking to the same people all the time, you're always going to have the same ideas and it's going to be very hard to have that groundbreaking kind of discovery or that breakthrough that you want. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you because you might be stuck looking at the world in one perspective and somebody yeah. else comes. And, you know, I think we've mentioned this before. It's, I think usually people who aren't like too in, in they're not too deep in the field um they can take a step back and actually see it with like novice eyes you know the beginner's yeah. mind i read i don't remember reading this book about having the beginner's mind and how your, your mind's not polluted by everybody else's crap ideas yeah that came before <laughs> you yeah yeah so you've got this yeah you've got to be careful though like obviously expertise comes into it and i think that's probably the one caveat that we could mention with this is that yeah, sure. It's great to like diversify, but you also have to make those connections within your field and stuff as well. It's important. Yeah, that's important. Um, I have yet to make those connections, dude. I've been so sporadic with my interests. Like in the MRES, I did like cognitive science. Yeah. I did a linguistics unit. I've done Chinese. I did a yeah. bit of philosophy. I don't know how all this is going to bring it back together. But what I do feel is that as I'm exploring these different areas, like I feel my brain like adapting and growing in those areas so that mm. now if i'm you learn to think differently in different areas and you can sure. apply that yeah across the board for sure and now if i meet people that's one of the benefits and this is why like we could do this podcast right when the, i'm when we both meet people because we have diverse interests and we've yeah, kind of pursued yeah. it it's really easy to hold a conversation mm. You're like oh shit um but i think also having diverse interests gives you a lot of different perspectives that you can bring into solving an issue so the the problem that you and i have um, or the project that Alex and I are working on. I mean, we were talking about how, like this book that I was reading, The Greatest Story Ever Told, how that's related to our project and how scientists in the past, have, physicists have approached it this way and how we should approach it in this yeah. way. So you can take and draw lessons from all these different areas and be creative as to how you bring those approaches to solving um, the, issue, the issue at hand. Yeah, I, I think the the power of the multidisciplinary approach is really strong. And, it's, and I think it's good that um, our uni and I think a lot of unis are heading this way uh, is by dropping that really kind of specialized honors program and moving more into a master's of research mm. kind of transition into a PhD, which is multidisciplinary. I think what Macquarie has done that now and Western Sydney has. And I think the word is yep. that a lot of unis are actually heading that way. That um, So it's good. I, I like it. Thought we can maybe also talk about um because it's a pet peeve of mine What's and that? uh it came up in in jack's interview is the uh about the nature of academic publishing and and about how unis 
Oh, not necessarily unis. It's maybe what we can get into, but um, about how publishing companies kind of like wrought the system. And oh yeah. And just to go over what Jack was talking about again is how, in a lot of cases, right, the public funds research. Like the only reason you and me can do research is because it's been funded by taxpayers. Mm. And then to get our research that we perform that's done by, paid for by taxpayers, to get that research published, we actually have to pay a publishing company <laughs> quite a big bit of money. A couple of thousand. Uh, yeah, a, a company that doesn't have very much overheads. They don't pay the reviewers. Yeah, they maybe right. pay some administration staff and some advertising mm. um, and some web hosting costs and the rest goes to like shareholders, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right? So they're making thousands of dollars and then, and then that's not even the worst part of it. We have to pay to get the publicly funded research published. That's not even the worst part. The worst part is that then they take that. We don't own the copyright for it anymore they can sell it to whoever they want. So the very public that paid for the research to be done with their tax dollars has to then pay this publishing company money to access the research. So it's kind of like they're charging the people to publish the research, then they're charging people to access the research, and they didn't pay anything to do the research at all. And they didn't even necessarily pay people to review the research. So it's it's, it's like a double a, rot. It's like a, such a thug move, man. Yeah, it is. It is. And it has actual lots of problems for the type of research that gets studied, right? Because then it creates this kind of, it's a, it's a bit of a capitalist system. And sometimes capitalism's great, works awesome. But in this case, what it does is it pushes academic journals because the way you get big in an academic journal is by having groundbreaking research, right? Mm. So that means that academic journals don't want to publish negative results, which yeah. pushes researchers to produce positive results. Right. And that's why you get problems like p-hacking and things mm. like this. And and not only that, but journals don't, if, if they're trying to get famous and they're trying to get money and they're trying to get people interested, that means that they're only going to publish um, positive results. They're not going to publish replication studies as well so yeah. and, and that's a problem because that's how science works right we we know that stuff happens right when when we can replicate it and there's journals out there that just outright refuse to publish a replication study so if you're repeating somebody else's work to see if the work's good and stacks up they just yeah. won't publish it and then if you're if the way you get a name in science is by publishing then that means no one's ever going to re replicate anything because they're not yeah. going to get published so this kind of like capitalist situation we've got in yeah. academic publishing it's not just bad because people are getting rorted and the public's getting rorted it's bad because it actually changes the nature of what people research yeah um no, yeah. Th that's a <coughs> very good point i mean just to touch on your th you said p hacking so um there was i think uh, i forget how long ago there was a study that was done um in collaboration between a few universities where they wanted to replicate some of the findings i think it was in a bunch of psychological journals and they found, I think, like only about 60% of them could be replicated. Yeah, it's it's a big problem. And like a little bit of it's the nature of the research. Like a lot of that in psychological research, as you know, it's it's not called a hard science, but it's probably one of the hardest, <laughs> hardest sciences <laughs> because there's so many variables and things. Sure. So I think that sometimes can contribute to the replication yeah. crisis. But p-hacking is... Uh, it's I wasn't prepared to explain it, but I'll give it a go off the top of my head. You want me to give you a head? Yeah, no, p-hacking is like, okay, so a p-value, when you run an experiment, let's say you collect your data, um, the p-value, if it's greater than like 
so you actually set it to whatever you want. But yeah, yeah, you can do it. So let's say zero point zero five, which is like if it's less than that, it means that it's significant. So if you did twenty trials, right? Um, yeah, if you did twenty trials, about one of them would buy. You'd be like. You'd have a one basically, in twenty. Basically, a I did a shit value. job, guys. Yeah, yeah, I did yeah, a shit try. job. Let you have try. a go. <laughs> <laughs> basically, a p-value tells you the chance that the result you got is incorrect. Yeah. So it's not necessarily the telling you the result. It's saying what's the probability that that result is wrong. Rather than wrong, it's a it's a consequence of chance or fluke. Yeah, that's got right. That. Yeah, 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 true. Yeah, yeah. So is the result you're seeing actually uh, an effect or is it just chance, random chance? And if you set a p-value at 0.05, that means if there's a 1 in 20 chance that the result you got is, is just is not actually a real result. It's just a random result. Yeah. So where this comes into p-hacking... So that's 95% chance that it's it's a... No, valid, no, 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 no. Well, yeah, 1 in... Yeah, yeah, yeah. 95% yeah. chance that it's a real result right yeah and a five percent chance that it's just a fluke yeah but here's where p-hacking comes into it right because scientists can sometimes unwittingly and sometimes very kind of like they know what they're doing but sometimes just by mistake scientists can get fooled right because the way to p-hack if you've got a one in 20 chance of a positive result being just due to random chance yeah then if you go and measure 20 variables there's a good chance that one of those variables oh. will be statistically significant with a proper p-value just by random chance. Right. So, so this is what p-hacking is, right? And there's some really good examples of this. One is um, a study done on the effects of GMOs on rats. So rats were fed GMO corn and they cut up the rats and they measure like 50, 60 different things all through these rats. And eventually they find, oh, the rats that we fed the corn had a higher rate of cancer. Yeah, um, but that's only because they measured so many different things, and right. uh, and you could like get that result just by random chance alone. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and just to add to that study, because I think what they did was they used mice that were prone to developing cancer already. Yeah, so they were prone to developing cancers anyway. Yeah, so, so they were genetically modified. Yeah, they were like this model, because um, that's what they do if they want to study certain chemotherapy, certain drugs that kill cancers they don't just put in human beings they test it on mouse models animal models yeah, so but make, those so animal they models measure the like width of the cancers they measure the, you know yeah. how many cancers they have they measure where they are in the yeah. body they measure all these different things and like like heaps of them could just get no result no difference no difference and they find that one where oh just by random chance alone there happened to be a difference in this group in the in the size of the cancers, and then they publish that as a positive result. And this gets back to what we were talking about before with academic journals, because academic journals only publish po positive, positive results, or a lot of them do. That creates an issue because yeah. scientists have this pressure on them then. If I want to make it big in science, I've got to get published, I've got to get cited, yeah, mm -hmm. which is how it is. But then if journals are only publishing these works where you get these statistically significant results it kind of puts this pressure on people to measure as many things as they can so they find yeah. that one result but then if they measure lots of things they can't tell if that results an actual result or if it's just yeah. the result of random chance yeah and also that negative uh N not being able to publish negative results can really slow down science and i think it has mm. because people end up doing the same shit over and over again not knowing that oh somebody else across the world has already done this and it hasn't worked out you know you replicate or you might have an idea and because it's not in the literature you think oh 
this is probably a valid idea to yeah. test. But you don't know, oh, 50 other people have already tested it and it's a shit idea. Yeah, they just don't didn't publish on it. Yeah, they yeah. No, they, it's not that they didn't, no, they sent it off for publication, but there was a negative result, so no one was interested in, yeah, in yeah. actually. You know, I, I was listening to a well, podcast yeah. where they were thinking of even establishing like journals that are purely just negative result journals mm. so that you can go there and actually find out, oh, this has already been yeah. done. But the problem is then like those journals, because it's like this capitalist kind of system that we've got, those journals won't make money. Yeah. yeah, and they won't exist because that's how journals make money, right? That's how you get famous as a journal, by having these great results. So it's kind of one of these systems that I think capitalism doesn't really help it. It kind of hinders it a bit. And and we had a whole section we haven't got to, maybe we can get to that now, is that, I think that uh, universities are kind of complicit. Is that the right word in this as well? Yeah, because like academic, like universities publish lots of research. Universities pay these journals licenses to get their stuff. Yeah, it could quite easily be the case that universities could get together and say to the big major journals, you know what, I'm not going to publish with you guys anymore unless you make the stuff all open access. Yeah, or <laughs> we're not going to publish with you guys anymore unless you start publishing more negative results. Or yeah, and the journals—that's where they're getting their money from. If people, if all the major universities refuse to publish in, in all these major journals, the mm. journals won't be there anymore. Yeah, so they'll have to comply. Yeah, but but the problem is the unis aren't coming together to do that. Right. Uh, yeah, that's the thing. It's almost like a revolution. Yeah, you need enough people. Or you need mm. people to believe that there's enough of, of a force that can actually topple what's happening. Problem is, and we were talking, I was talking to James actually this morning just in the postgrad room. So this is James Lee that we had on two weeks ago. Yeah. Yep. Um, episode 20. Yeah. Check him out. He's a really cool guy. But I was talking to him this morning about how it's a little bit of a boys club as well. And it's probably that way between the universities, like the heads of these universities, you know, it's getting into conspiracy theory territory. Dun, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but you can quite easily see how a, a large academic journal that's making millions upon millions of dollars a year in profit could quite easily pay heads of universities <laughs> to, you know, come and like wine and dine with us for a little bit. And, you know, there's a bit of back scratching going on. So that's probably why we're not seeing this massive re revolt from all the universities yeah, is because... There's no incentive for them to do it, really. I've uh, for for how long have I known you? For almost two years now, Alex. I've never heard of Alex be a conspiracy theorist. Oh, there you go. This is it happens. Th this is it, man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Alex has become. I a told you it was a pet peeve of mine. Hashtag. Yeah. Once I, once you get me on academic <laughs> publishing, I can't stop. Dude, that's hilarious. But yeah, I don't know how you're gonna solve this, man. We it's spoke, a hard one. We spoke yeah. to Meow, and they, they're making some moves to open science, but uh, well, that's the thing. Like these moves are happening. I guess that's the good thing. Like we are seeing a, more of a move to open access publishing, and like Jack's uh, journal as well is mm. going to be all open access, so the public can get it for free and share the research and share the wealth of knowledge. We're seeing movements like open science, which is what Meow's kind of talking about. This is where people don't even worry about publishing. Mm. You just go and you do your science experiment and you put your results up online for free. Um, there are problems with these models, I guess, as well. Like, how do you fund really expensive research projects with that type of stuff? Because some research projects, like our research is pretty cheap, but some research projects um, cost millions upon millions of dollars to do. You know, like, how do you how do you fund a Large Hadron Collider 
<laughs> if you're going to make it open science and people can't make money out of it. And so it's, so there are some problems to need to be solved, but sure. uh, that's, Maybe. I think it's a good good thing to aim for. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know if... I don't think it's... I've I've had this conversation with, with my friend and she was like, like, we're just talking about capitalism. It's a good thing and a bad thing, but you can definitely yeah. see how bad it is in this case. I think in some some context it's very bad and some context is very good right like, super limiting that's like, the like, problem it's like yeah we forget about altruism we forget about like doing the right thing in, but instead we're driven by greed and money like fuck yeah. it screw this world screw the environment like I in some respects in some respects it can it has this remarkable ability to save the day sometimes capitalism as well which is sometimes what i see it's kind of interesting like uh again i think mentioned sandy already this was her but getting back to sandy how he was talking about the solution to climate change could very well come from a business proposition Mm. like if somebody works out a way of taking carbon out of the atmosphere and selling it (laughs) yeah in some way then that's gonna that could well solve climate change so i don't know it's have this love-hate relationship with capitalism sometimes. I, c- I can see how it can be very useful and can really drive change and drive stuff, but I, I don't think it's the saviour of everything. And I think there's some some fields or avenues, can't think of a good word. This is why we need socialism, bro. Some fields are avenues where it actually doesn't work, where it could hinder. And, and science publishing and sharing of research knowledge is definitely one where I think it kind of hinders more than it helps. Stuff, stuff like as well, like space exploration, right? It's one um, I've heard, I think it was Neil deGrasse Tyson, maybe it was Lawrence Krauss, talk about a lot as well, how it's really great that commercialization's coming in... Uh, is, I'll let it import. Is, is Sorry, it? we just noticed one of the videos stop. I'll fix that in a second. Oh, okay. Doesn't oh, matter. I'll just cut yet. that one out. We'll go off this one. G'day. Yeah, so, so sharing... Um, like space exploration, right? It's a good good example of where commercialization and capitalism can really help because you get these capital ventures that trying to um, uh, trying to like make space commercial, space flight commercial, and that'll really drive the space industry, right? Now, technology and getting into space will improve a lot, but it's not going to save everyone because people aren't going to have capitalist ventures that you know push the boundaries Mm. like get us to mars and that type of stuff like because you can't have people dying like that's a risky venture right um so it's kind of like government like pushes at the forefront yeah invest money and pushes the extremes and the capitalism comes back behind it and makes it profitable and Mm. turns it into a more of a venture Mm. so there's hope and you see that a lot with like military i guess technology and things as well where the government really pushes that technology to like fight wars but then capitalism will come back after and reap the benefits and make it more accessible to everyone you know government and capitalism may be two words that might trigger a lot of people to like Capitalism is evil, and the world, yeah. world order is gonna take over and kill us. Anyway, <laughs> should we call it a I day? Think we should call it. It's getting, getting sunny. I'm getting very hot. There's it's, like beads of sweat coming up on my face. Man, it's it was nice actually doing this in the sun. It was good. Yeah. But Alex, his his skin color can't tolerate. Next it, time so. I'm gonna wear shorts. No. <laughs> <laughs> Don't wear <be> shorts. <laughs> 
<laughs> Do you remember that episode of like this just reminded me of that episode of Friends when Phoebe's dating that dude and he's always wearing shorts and his balls and testicles can be seen from one angle because I don't think he's wearing like undies and stuff. <laughs> so, <laughs> and Chandler sees him freaks out. He's like, ah! Yeah, I don't want that. I didn't get into Friends very much, I've got to be honest. Because you ain't got no friends, Alex. Yeah, I was more into Seinfeld. Were you? Yeah. Yeah, we though. Anyway. We're going to have to say goodbye to Camera 1. Camera 1. Because Camera 2 is still importing, so. Shit, we need to get um, a social media manager and as well as Michael. Yeah. Tate and Michael on so they can say a few words because they are on our team and they are awesome. Yeah, we'll have to get them on maybe next week. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> All right. See you later. Okay. Bye.